Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. There are few more comforting passages of of Scripture in this constantly moving world, and yet there are few that are also more challenging to us. We need rest, and we know it even if we're not very good at accepting it. As a people in a society that prioritizes and demands ambition and drive, we have a tendency to press our noses to the grindstones until we draw blood, to push ourselves until we break, and only then pause and call our collapse a well-earned rest. There's a study from a few years ago that found that the average American checked their phone 80 times a day while on vacation, because even when we're trying to rest, We struggle with letting the world turn without us. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Over the next few weeks in worship, we're going to be exploring the unique gift that God has to offer us in rest, relearning how to rest, and discovering how rest can reset so much of our spiritual well-being, transforming not just our inner selves, but also how we embody our faith in community and in service to one another. Although admittedly, we're tackling it a bit backwards. Rest in Scripture begins with the Sabbath day, that weekly rhythm which is ordained in the very act of creation itself, the instruction that out of every seven days, there should be one that is devoted to rest. This weekly rhythm sets off other patterns of rest for the Israelite people, including a seven-year cycle, one Sabbath year of rest in every seven years, and then a cycle of every seven seven seven-year cycles, which is to say that after every 49 years, there would be a massive year of rest called the year of Jubilee. And so it makes sense to start with the weekly pattern, but we're going to come back around to that later. We begin today with the Sabbath year and the one specific instruction to forgive all debts every seven years, because after all, we are celebrating being debt-free today. And so it seemed too perfect not to begin here, even if it took us 11 years of payments to pay off our debt, because our lender didn't have the courage to do the biblical thing and just call it good after seven years. This instruction from Deuteronomy, has something important to say about how resting in God can teach us to appreciate what we have been given and how it can empower us to share what we have with those around us. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I don't know what came over me, but a few weeks ago, I told my wife Jennifer that I would, in fact, be interested in sorting through some of our excess belongings, organizing what we'd like to keep, and donating or disposing of the rest. This is not something that I usually do, at least not willingly. Friends, I collect clutter, and I collect it happily. I hold on to everything I can hold on to, just in case it might be needed later. But in some very out-of-character enthusiasm, I helped take on getting rid of some of the things that I had previously insisted on saving. And we took a full carload of various things to goodwill, and when the kind worker asked there what it was that we were donating, I could only say it was really a bit of everything. There was a lamp, there were clothes, an old dog bed, some books, dishware, a teapot, some camping things, and who knows 
what else. It was everything we didn't need anymore, including some things that we had never needed, but things that someone else might want. But not everything was fit to be donated. We went through some of our kitchen cabinets, sorting and organizing and donating, and then we made it to the the tea cabinet. Friends, I have loved tea for longer than I have loved coffee, which means that we have the better part of a kitchen cabinet devoted entirely to tea, things to brew tea with, and a whole variety of loose-leaf teas. And, as we discovered, a collection of teas that I had brought back from a trip to China about six years ago. It was part of my seminary experience, a chance to witness Christianity and other cultural setting and paid for by a scholarship program, so of course I had to go. We went and spent some time in China, and one of the many incredible experiences we had there was visiting a tea house and tasting a whole variety of teas like I had never tasted before. And I was on a budget when it came to souvenirs, but I brought home a whole collection of teas from that tea house. And then I didn't drink them. For six years, across two different houses, across many different instances of trying to organize and sort through everything, those extra special teas that came all the way from China sat in a cabinet waiting for a special occasion that never came until a few weeks ago when it was clear that they were six years old and very expired and definitely tasteless and fit only for the trash. I had never forgotten about them completely but I'd thought them so valuable somehow that I wouldn't allow them to be used. And isn't that what we do sometimes? We keep the good china in the cabinet so it won't be damaged, and there's no special occasion special enough to bring it out and to be used. We hold on to what we have with a surprising fervor, trying to keep it safe for the sake of keeping it safe. Holding on to things for tomorrow in case they might be needed is a comfort in an unsettling world, a measure of security held against the fear of the unknown. It may also be missing the point entirely. This passage from Deuteronomy pushes back against this human nature to hold on to what we have in an attempt to provide security in a difficult time. For the instruction does come in a difficult time, For the Israelites, as part of their history, they have moved from slavery in Egypt to years in the desert to now being in the promised land, to owning their own land, having power, having the ability to shape and live in a society of their own creation, which came with all of the complications and messiness that that can bring. It's so much easier when you don't have the agency It's so much easier when God provides anything you can't hold on to it. It gets so much more complicated when you have things and money and power. It was a time of deep dislocation for the Israelites. This is a term that the theologian Walter Brueggemann coined, and one that he says we may find ourselves in now, a time of deep dislocation. Dislocation, a time when the old certitudes seem less certain, when the old privileges are under powerful challenge, the old dom- dominations are increasingly ineffective and fragile, when the established governmental, educational, judicial, and medical institutions seem less and less able to deliver what we need and have come to expect, when the old social fabrics are fraying under the assaults of selfishness, fear, anger, and greed. It is a time like we may have known or may find ourselves in 
when the world around us seems increasingly unable to provide for what we need. And so, we think about how we might hold on to everything we could possibly need. The time of deep uncertainty in looking to the future. And it is times like that when it is particularly common and all too easy to exploit those who do not have as much as anyone else. When anxious people trying to secure their own future might be tempted to gouge their economically vulnerable neighbors to secure stability for themselves. And this is what Deuteronomy is driving the Israelites to avoid. To ensure that in their new society, that out of the chaos of the times that they live in, they would not create a permanent underclass of people. Those who have been gouged and left with nothing to ensure that their neighbors might survive. And so, every seven years, the Israelites are instructed that everyone who is in debt, that everyone who owes us money, no longer has to pay it. It is an absolutely absurd economic notion. It's not completely unfamiliar to the times and to the world in the ancient Near East societies, but generally, a complete forgiveness of debts happened only when there was a king or a political leader who decreed it because they knew it would give them some sort of political goodwill from those who found themselves freed from the chains of debt. It was an extra trick to keep in the hat until it was needed. But God wouldn't keep this one in the hat. God put it on a schedule. Six years of paying off debt, and in year seven, everyone is free. Because the idea then, as now, as always, is that those who borrow money from someone else should work to pay it off. And by and large, that is in fact what happens for six years. Six years is a fairly long time. But then whatever is left in year seven is forgiven. Because God hears those who have the least, those who might otherwise find themselves trapped in debt they cannot escape from, forever owned by whoever they owe money to. God, who has delivered the Israelites from slavery, will not allow them to enslave anyone else in word or in deed. In a text, the Bible, from beginning to end, that asks so many difficult things of us to love even our enemies at all times, this is still one of the most challenging demands that God asks of God's it is a demand to rest. To rest from holding on to what we have. A rest to demand for asking back what is in fact ours. A rest from forever making more. A rest from seeing those around us for what they can give to us. God insists that the people of God Trust enough to rest. 
that in their fears of what might come, trust in God and rest anyway. In their fears that they may not have enough to make it to year eight, if somebody doesn't pay back their debts in year seven, trust enough to rest. And it is freeing. Not necessarily the sort of freedom we tend to think of. The freedom of having, the freedom of, freedom of being able to do something with what we have. But a freedom to not have to fret about our own future. A freedom to leave things to God. And know that God will make it work out. And this is hidden in the text just a little bit, but it's there. In that portion where it talks about not holding back in year six, because you know year seven is coming. Deuteronomy says, this is a wicked thought. Do not let these thoughts even enter your mind. For perhaps the writers of Deuteronomy knew how people work, knew how these fears get in, and how we sometimes hold back for the sake of being too generous and leaving ourselves without enough. It says, do not let these fears in. Open your hands and know that in the generosity, in the giving, God is at work. That this is, in fact, how God brings the blessings that God promises will come. It is the idea that treating our creditors compassionately may still yield an adequate return. That by being generous to others does not leave us with less, but in fact creates a more uplifting society for us all. For there is, in fact, a distinct movement in this text of Deuteronomy not to look in terms of rich and poor, those who have and those who do not, but Israelite and Israelite and Israelite all. That those who owe money and those who have money are neighbors. That those who need and those who have something to give are neighbors, are part of the same community, part of a social fabric that is sustained by the giving and the receiving of all. That in fact, by giving compassionately, we create a community that holds us all. We create a community that ensures that all will have what they need. Although Deuteronomy says it just a bit differently, doesn't it? For at one point it says, there will always be the poor among you, which is rather a disappointing, disillusioning thing to say, but perhaps Deuteronomy knows how people work, knows that we can never get enough people to do this to eradicate all the poor, but says instead there will always be poor, so we must always give. There will always be those who need, so we must always be ready to give from what we have. There is a community formed in the giving and in the receiving. There's a story that I read this week uh, told by a rabbi about a synagogue and a community there and about someone who fell asleep during a sermon, as some have the tendency to do. They were a rich man sleeping through the sermon quite restfully until something happened. There was a noise or something. They woke up with a start, and they happened to hear an instruction from the text that they were to bake 12 loaves of bread and leave it on the altar for God. That this was rather a surprising request of God of them. But they went home 
from worship that day and baked 12 loaves of bread, and then they brought it back to the synagogue when no one was around, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, closed it, and left it for God. There happened to be later that day another member of the community who didn't have enough to eat for himself or for his family who came to the synagogue and prayed to God, saying, we do not have enough to eat. We will not make it until tomorrow unless you hear my prayer, O God. It was as the prayer on the man's lips as he came into the place to worship, came close to the Ark of the Covenant and happened to smell some fresh baked bread. Opening it, seeing the 12 loaves of bread, the man celebrated for God has answered his prayer. He took the loaves of bread home, ate them. But the rich man happened to come back the next day thinking how silly it was that he had baked 12 loaves of bread, how God doesn't eat bread came into the synagogue, opened the Ark of the Covenant, ready to take his bread out before it could go stale or moldy or anything else, and the bread wasn't there. The man celebrated and said, God did need my bread. Next week, I'll bake it with raisins. And that's what this man did. The next week, baked 12 loaves of bread with raisins, put in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was gone, taken by the man who again didn't have enough for himself or for his family, but now did with 12 more loaves of bread. And it continued like this week after week, year after year, until a new rabbi came to the synagogue. Rabbis and preachers and clergy of all sorts have a tendency to get in the way of a good thing that's going on. This rabbi was working late, happened to notice the man bringing in 12 loaves of bread, and then happened to notice the other one walking out with that 12 loaves of bread. And so the rabbi called the two together and said, I want you to know what's been going on. This man has been baking 12 loaves of bread, and you have been taking home 12 loaves of bread. What a wonderful thing we have here. And the rich man lamented it and said, You mean God didn't want my bread after all? And the hungry man said, You mean God didn't answer my prayers after all? And the rabbi, realizing he was undoing a good thing, grabbed the hand of the rich man and the hand of the poor man and said, look, here are the hands of God, the hand of God who bakes bread and shares it, and the hand of God found in the least of these who takes it and eats it. And there was a community formed in that moment by a rich man and a poor man who began to see the image of God in one another, began to see each other as neighbors. And they kept baking and eating bread, building a community that cares for all people. There is a blessed gift in having, for it ensures we have something to give. The instruction from Deuteronomy, however it is we wish to apply it, seems to come down to the basic principle that what we are given is not ours to hold on to, that we shouldn't get lost in a never-ending cycle of trying to ensure we have enough, but in fact lose ourselves in making sure those around us have enough. Making sure that we are not holding others in debt or in places where they do not have what they need, when we might have what they need. 
for the gifts that we are given may in fact go stale if they do not continue to be given as tea does in the back of a closet or a cabinet for six years. In the way that a building can be kept in pristine condition if you never use it, there is a blessing in continuing to share our blessings. And friends, when we celebrate this evening and a little later in the service today that we are debt-free, it is a recognition that we have been blessed with a blessing we don't need to hold on to for ourselves, but one that can be used to build a community that cares for and loves one another. We have lived in our addition for 11 years, and you can see it if you look close. There are marks on the wall, scuffs on the baseboard, signs of wear and tear, which we only have because we have seen this blessing as a blessing to be shared, which we have because we know we can rest in God who will care for us, who has cared for us, and will continue doing so. The gift of rest is a reminder that we do not have to hold on to everything we have been given, but that we can continue to bless one another with the blessings that we have. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us as we continue in worship now to stand together and sing.